right? If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind, I almost said if you wouldn't mind, whether you mind or not, open your Bible. And we're going to look today at Romans chapter five, the last two verses. There is one thing I would ask if you wouldn't mind. Bob, would you mind going to the office and grabbing me a bottle of water out of the refrigerator that's in there? I appreciate that. Most days, God has given me the kind of throat where I don't need a bottle of water. Some days I do, though. So, thank you. We're going to look at Romans 5, verses 20 and 21 today as we keep going through the book of Romans, verse by verse. Here is what the Lord has told us. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul's pen, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin came in to increase the trespass. Oh my goodness. Guys, I want you to think about what's around these verses. Always want to think about what's around the verses. We don't want to just take verses out of context and say, well, this verse says this, and so therefore I know the fullness of it. It's given to us together with a whole letter that's to be read. And in particular, we're in the part of this letter that has to do with our assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Bob. I apologize for the gross drinking sounds. All right. Okay. This is about our assurance. The, the, the book of Romans has told us why we need the gospel, which is that we're sinners who are just condemned and lost in our sin, whether you're, whether you're somebody who grew up with or without the Bible, whether Jew, Gentile, barbarian, anything in between, that we were born sinners, we were hopeless. There is absolutely nothing that we could do to save ourselves, but that God has given the good news, the good news in the good person uh, of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, that the way of salvation for all peoples is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this section of Scripture is here to help us be assured that those that Jesus has saved by his grace and given the gift of faith will stand, that we're not going to fall, that we will stand firm in Christ. And it's on the basis of what Christ has done that we will have eternal life, not on the basis of what we could do to convert ourselves, which we can't, not on the basis of what we can do to make ourselves more saved, which we can't, but on the basis of what Jesus has done and the grace and grace alone that Christ has poured out. And in the paragraph that we are in the end of, I guess it's three paragraphs in the ESV, but it's a section that started in Romans 5, verse 12 that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he goes on and explains that as all die in Adam, so all are made alive in Christ. Everyone who is in Adam, everyone who comes as a part of the natural-born human race, you and me, we are born dead men. We are born needing a Savior or else we're doomed. But that all who are in Christ will be made alive or are made alive, are given eternal life. So we've been told about these two realms. There's you're either in the realm of Adam or you are in the realm of the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ. But oh, if you're in the realm of the new Adam, you have eternal life. You're not going to fall out of it. But the question comes up in all of this, 
And he's answering it here in these last two verses. If those are the two things, if you've got either dead in sin in Adam or alive in grace and righteousness in Jesus Christ, why was there ever a law? Why was there ever a law? Because he's, he's talked about what's going on with God's dealing with the Jewish people and what's going on with God's dealing with the Gentiles who never heard of the Bible, never heard the name Yahweh or any of those things. Why is it that God would deal with this chosen people through the law? Why would he give all these things if the law can't save us? If we were already condemned before the law came, it seems like the law is kind of pointless. Well, he's going to answer that question. That's what this is about. Why did God's law, God's written rules, come? And he says, the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, down the street from the parsonage where we live, uh, there is a park. And at that park, there's a big hill. And lots of people like to go to that hill in the winter and, and sled down it. Uh, and they announced a couple of years ago, the township announced there's, there's going to be a giant slide, or I don't know if they said giant, but we all perceive giant to be built into it. This big slide that's going to be off on one side of that hill that's going to be built into the hill for snow sliding. And everybody in the neighborhood was so excited about this. And finally, the machines came out, and they started digging and making a path up the hill, and everything was prepared. And then the slide came in on the truck from California, and it got delivered. And it was about as long, I'd say, as from about right here to maybe the bottom of the pulpit. And that's it. And we all looked, and we thought, wait a second. I don't think it's what they thought they ordered, but I don't know. I don't know. But the funny thing is that if you go to that slide, and it's actually smaller than some of the slides on the actual playground, but there's these two big posts with giant signs. There's one at the bottom and one at the top, which are right next to each other. And they're, they're identical, and they have this big list of rules as you walk up. And they're rules that you would never think of if you just looked at that slide. Rules like, do not skateboard on this slide. And rules like, do not use wax paper on this slide. And you look at it and you think, well, it never would have occurred to me that that slide would be more fun with wax paper, but maybe I should. <laughs> maybe I should give it a try. And you look and you say, why is that law there? What is it? And you could look at all of those rules and you could say, yeah, I guess those are good rules, but I don't get why they're there. And that's the question that's coming up here is, well, yeah, we have the law of God and these are good rules, but we've already laid out, like, people are already dead in sin before the law came in. People are redeemed by the grace of Jesus and not by keeping the law. So why was it there in the first place? It just almost, in this part of Romans at least, the, the, the existence of the law itself feels out of place. Well, he says here, here's God's purpose in it. If you're following, please follow along on the back of the bulletin. I think my sermons make more sense when you, when you use the outline. But it says here that the very first thing that we need to know about the law is that the law came in to increase the trespass, as it says. The law came in to increase sin. Now, what is it talking about when it says the law? I've been talking about the law. Well, it's talking about the written rules of God, where God would lay out for us the things that he would have us to do or the things that he would have us not to do. 
Now, that's summed up most succinctly and clearly in what we call the Ten Commandments that God gave on top of Mount Sinai, booming from his loud voice to all of Israel. Those ten laws that he gave in that unique way, that he, these were the only laws that he scratched by his own finger into tablets that would go into the Ark of the Covenant. These are an expression of God's eternal moral law, and he wrote them down for us. And they say, here's what you should do, here's what you should not do. Jesus summarized them all even more succinctly than Ten Commandments. He summarized them all in two commandments, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first of those having to do with what's laid out in the first four commandments, the second having to do with what's laid out in the last six commandments. But every thou shalt and every thou shalt not in the Bible is part of God's law. It's not just about love God and love neighbor. It's not just those two commands. It's expanded into ten commands, and it's expanded into all the commands in all of Scripture. So that anytime you open your Bible and you see, here is what God says that I should do, or here is what God says that I should not do, those can be classified in the category of law. Because if it says to do this and you don't do it, it's called sin. And if it says don't do this and you do do it, it's called sin. And why did God do that? Well, it says that the law came in to increase trespass. Where it says came in, it's a word that almost sounds like the law is kind of sneaky. It's coming in alongside. It's sneaking in. It's coming in, but there's a purpose for it. And the purpose is to increase the trespass. Now, another question of why it would need to be there is why would you need the law if people already have some form of the law written in their hearts in what's called a conscience? He said this already in Romans. Romans one thirty two says they know, and this is even explicitly talking about people who have never heard a word of the Bible before. That's what that section of Romans 1 is about. But he says they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. He says this is already something that God has given human beings an inherent innate knowledge about, is that there is a standard of righteousness and that violating that standard of righteousness brings the death sentence from God the Creator. It even says in in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So it's not as though there was no knowledge of sin or no punishment for sin before the law existed or where where people don't know the law. That's all there. So why the law? Why bring in this written set of rules? Well, I've said it, I've said it, and I've said it, and I'm going to say it again. It says it right here that the purpose of God in bringing in the law, this is not the only purpose, but the purpose here is to increase sin to increase the trespass. Now, before we answer why would God will for that to happen, I want to see how does that happen. How does it happen that God's perfect rules would come in and that the result would be an increase of sin? Well, there's at least three ways. One of those is that the law clarifies what sin is. 
There are places where maybe in some respects it's pinging someone's conscience that they're sinning, but you can also ignore your conscience and you can train your conscience and you can dull your conscience to where you don't really care about those things anymore. But when the law comes in and the written code of God, it's going to say explicitly, you are a sinner. It's going to take the perfect standard of righteousness and overlay that on the human heart and the human life, and it's going to show you what's wrong with you. great example is the, 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 you know, the day and age that we live in. Whatever romantic desires somebody has in their heart, common way of teaching is, well, that, if you just have it in your heart, you didn't choose to do it, you're, you're not doing something that hurts anybody, then, well, it must be okay. The law of God comes and says, here is my standard. My standard is marriage between one man and one woman. And that's it. Everything else is classified as sin. And so the law of God clarifies what sin is, and it just shows the sinfulness of sin more and more. It reminds me of those, those pictures that you hand out to kids where you, you've got two pictures, and, and you ask the kids, find the differences, right? And, and the kids can go in and say, oh, well, the, the monkey's ear is a banana in this picture. And you can find those differences. Well, what, what the law does is it, it takes itself and it puts itself over human hearts, human families, human businesses, human governments, you, and it shows what's the difference. Here's the righteous standard, and where are you wrong? Where are you different from God's righteous standard? So it increases sin by clarifying what sin is. It increases sin by making sinners, secondly, more guilty in their direct disobedience to it. Now, if, if you have a kid who's drawing on the wall, and they've never been told before not to draw on the wall... They already know not to draw on the wall. They're already guilty, but they've never heard that rule. And you come in and you see what they've done and, and you correct them, get them to help you clean it up, and tell them, don't do this again. We only draw on paper. But then you come in a second time and they've drawn on the wall. The consequences go up from there. Because now, it's not just that it's, this was a thing that was wrong that needs to be corrected. It's this was clearly willful disobedience. This is one of the ways that the law increases sin, is it makes sinners more guilty. Because it's no longer just a feeling in the conscience. It's now directly, thus saith the Lord, and I will do something different. It's direct disobedience. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the, the two servants in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. He said, That servant who knew his master's will but did not uh, get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what, was des- what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Both of those servants did what was wrong and both get beaten. But the one who explicitly heard the command and willfully disobeyed it gets the more severe beating. So this is one of the ways that the law increases sin. And the third way that it does it is by stirring up sinful hearts to do even more sin. 
Remember, I told you just a second ago, I, it never would have occurred to me to go down that slide with wax paper unless the rule had said, don't go down the slide with wax paper. And even as we read our Bibles, even as we see the commands that God has, sometimes there are ideas for sin that never crossed our mind until we see that God's law says, do not do that. Paul says, while we were living in our flesh, in the sinful passions aroused by the law, uh, or excuse me, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetous, covetousness. That's Romans 7, verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8. Now, he doesn't mean that he had no covetousness in his heart before he read the command, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. But I think what he does mean is that there's all kinds of covetousness listed out there that you might not have even thought of. You might not have coveted your neighbor's wife until it says right there, do not covet your neighbor's wife, and you start thinking about your neighbor's wife. And so the law can even stir up sin in hearts that the heart never thought of until it read the law and saw, oh, that's a thing that I could do. And so it says here that this is the purpose. This is a, what we call grammatically a purpose clause. The laws came in for the purpose to increase the trespass, which leaves us in a little bit of a quandary. Why would that be purpose? Is that a problem with God? Does God have an evil purpose? Does God want to be the author of sin and make people more and more sinful? Well, we just have to answer that in light of what the rest of the Scripture says about God, which is absolutely not. This is not a problem with God. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right, do what is just? If we take this and we start accusing God of injustice, then we have simply misunderstood both this passage and the whole nature of God. There is not a problem with God here. So then is there a problem with God's law? And the answer to that is no. There's not a problem with God's law either. It says in Romans 7, 12, of course we'll go through Romans 7 in two weeks. I'm kidding. We won't get there that fast. Um, it says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You hear that? This is the same guy who just said that the law came in to increase the trespass. He says the law is, is holy and righteous and good. But he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What this is getting at, the reason that it increased sin is not because there's a problem with God who gave the law. It's not because there's a problem with the law that God gave. It's because there's a problem with sinners. The problem is us. It's not God. It's not God's law. The problem is that we were born in love with sin. And so when, our, when sinful hearts come into contact with God's law, sin increases. The problem of guilt and sin 
And disobedience gets even worse when it comes into contact, when our hearts come into contact with the law. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I have good news for you who are in Christ. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Guys, this is a good thing. And we're going to come to that in weeks ahead as we get to chapter 6 and 7 and 8. Just the beauty of being in Christ and what the use of the law is for us who are in Christ. But what it's showing us right here is that the lostness of our lostness was made even more lost by the fact that the law came in and showed just how deeply in sin we were apart from Christ. It just showed it in ugliness in blackness so that, as it's about to tell us, the diamond of the gospel could shine brighter. That's what it's going to be. But before we get to that, before we get to the grace of God that's greater than our sin, I want to just think about a few things that we can do with this fact that the law came in to increase the trespass. What can we do with this? Now, you don't have to be able to do something with every truth in Scripture. Some of them are just ends in themselves. You just want to know who God is so you can love and worship him. But there is some usefulness here, some really practical usefulness in the fact that the law increases sin. One of those things is this. Do not use the law of God as a way to appeal to God for your righteousness. Do not use your keeping of rules no matter how good you feel that those rules are, no matter how good those rules actually are, do not use that as your basis to come to God and to say, God, I'm right with you today, aren't I? Today, I, I, I am, I'm closer to you. I'm brought more into your presence by the fact that I have cleaned this thing up in my life. Right, God? Do you know what brings us into the presence of God? Christ our high priest, not your law-keeping. You know what the law does is the law shows us how sinful we are. It shows us how sinful we are, and so there is no work that your hands can do to make you more accepted with God. There are no words that your mouth can say to make you more accepted with God. And there is no goodness that your heart can intend that will make you more accepted to God. What will make you accepted before God is the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're looking to Christ alone for your salvation. Another thing you can do is do use the law to show yourself your own sin. This is a thing that you can do with God's law. Is you can let it pick you apart. And you can be happy for it to do that even as it's going to be a little painful. You can do this with any command you come across. You can do this with the commands in the Old Testament. You can do this with the commands in the New Testament. You can do this with all of the commands of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods before me. And we can look at that and we can say, oh, good, I don't have any other gods. I, I, don't, I don't worship Allah. 
And yet that command, as we grow deeper in understanding it and meditate on it and let it pick us apart, is going to show us, wait a second, maybe there are some pagan practices in my life. Maybe I need to put away my horoscope. Maybe I need to burn my lucky socks. And maybe I need to fall out of love with money. Maybe I need to not let my belly be my God. Maybe I need not to worship the things of this world alongside my God. The second commandment would, would tell us, you shall not make unto thee any graven image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. You may say to yourself, well, that's an easy one. I don't have any Buddha statues in my house, which if you do, throw them away, please. As you say, well, I don't, I don't have idols. Well, for one thing, there may be other gods, which gets at the first commandment, but you may also not recognize that that commandment is about not just not worshiping other things besides God, it's about not worshiping God in the way that he has not said to worship him. This is a commandment that says, here is how I will be served. Don't come up with your own ways to serve me. Whether those ways are based on your own feelings, whether those ways are based on tradition or anything else, that God has said, this is how I will be served, and we should serve him that way. When it says in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You say, well, this is good. I don't curse very often. You should curse never. But it is possible that your church attendance today is an act of taking the Lord's name in vain. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have come to church, but it's perhaps possible that you came here not to worship and meet with the living God, but for some other reason. Now, hallow his name. Hallow his name. The fourth commandment says, you, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you say, well, this, I've definitely got that one. I'm at church on Sunday morning. I wanted to sleep, but I got up and I'm here. And after church, I'm going to go out to lunch and I'm going to get ready for work for tomorrow. And I'm going to this and I'm going to that. And the Lord would say, I gave you the, I gave you the day. I told, you, I told you you have six days when you can labor and do all your work. And, and the seventh day, as Jesus said, is made for man. Oh, why don't we receive it? He says, honor your father and your mother. And you think, well, okay, I don't say anything very bad about them. Or maybe they've passed away. And yeah, I go to their grave and I, I, I honor them. But then we don't realize this has to do not just with our parents, but with everyone that God would put in a position of authority over us to have honor even to those who are wicked that he's put in authority over us. And he says, you shall not murder. Well, I haven't murdered, but... Did you spend all day stewing over that guy who cut you off? You say, you shall not commit adultery. You say, well, okay, I haven't, that's, that's, not, that's not part of my life today, but, but boy, look at her. Jesus says that's, that is committing adultery in your heart. You say, you shall not steal. Okay, I don't steal stuff. I, don't, I may not put down all exactly the right numbers on my tax forms, I may, not, uh, I, I may not use the time that I'm being paid to work for actually doing the work I'm being paid for, but no, I don't steal. Yeah, yeah, you do. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you say, well, I only tell the truth when I give all the juicy secrets about my neighbor. Oh, that's a direct breaking of that commandment. 
And then Exodus 20, verse 17, listen to this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his female servant or his male servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Are you discontent in your life? You think that God should have given you what he gave to someone else? And you think that that's not sin that you need forgiveness from? What I'm saying here is that when, the, when it says the law came in to increase the trespass, it is okay to overlay that law over our lives and over our words and over our hearts and to see exactly where it shows us our brokenness and our wrongness and our sin. It's okay for it to, I guess you could say, increase sin in our own hearts in that way so that we could then be driven deep into repentance and deep to Jesus and deep to the grace of God in Christ. Do use the law to examine yourself and do use the law to repent and to plead for God's mercy. Use the law to show yourself the sweetness of the gospel. When it shows you how deeply you need forgiveness, then run to the arms of Jesus. Let the law make you run to Jesus, the Lord of the gospel, the good news giver who gives us grace in life. Because the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Go to him. Go to him. Another thing that you can do with this is you can use the law in your evangelism. When you are telling your children, your extended family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, and the people that you just randomly meet, and the people on the other side of the world that you fly there who you never would have met, but you want to go and tell them the gospel, wherever it is that you are sharing the, the good news of Jesus Christ, use the law. Use the law in your telling of the gospel. Because it, it, it is through understanding the sinfulness of sin that people are going to understand their need for the grace of Jesus. Jesus did this consistently. He would point out to people, are you obeying the law? Well, come and follow me, you lawbreaker. He, he would tell people over and over, sin no more. He would point out to them what was going on so that he could then point out to them the grace that he would show them. And this is a model that you see and that we need. There's controversy about whether or not it's appropriate to use the law and the Ten Commandments in the gospel. But absolutely it's appropriate. Because it says right here, the law came in to increase sin so that, it says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign in life through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ah. Oh. So when we go out and we tell the gospel, whether you're doing an evangelism ministry or just talking to your kids, it is okay to let people know that they are actually sinners who actually need the gospel. That's become very unpopular because, because when, when the law causes sin to abound in those gospel conversations, it, it feels uncomfortable. Unbelievers don't like it. It feels strange. It feels confrontational. And we don't want to be rude we don't want our personalities to get in the way. But this is just part of the truth of what God has laid out in his word, is that, no, 
you who have told me that you think you're a good person, let's talk about God's definition of a good person. If you, if you want to know how to do that, just how to use the law in evangelism, just go to YouTube and type in Ray Comfort. And pretty much every video that comes up is going to show you how to do that. Ray Comfort. All right, but that, that law is going to sting, but you need to feel the sting of the law in order to run to the balm of the gospel. You need to know that you're a sinner so that you can be saved. Now, not everybody who hears it is going to run to, the, to Jesus. We know that that's up to the Lord. That's up to the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. But we use the law in evangelism. So what's the, what's the result, though? I've spent a lot of time on that phrase, and I'll spend less time in the other phrases, but we need to know the result. Why did the law come in to increase the trespass? Well, it's for a greater purpose. The greater purpose is this. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There was already sin enough in the world for everybody in the whole world to be dead in sin and to die and to be condemned just from the sin of Adam. And then there was more sin after that. His firstborn son committed the first murder. And Abel ended up, as far as I know, being the the first ever human being to go to heaven. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it was through the means of the first murder. And, And it gets worse, even in that fourth chapter of Genesis. And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. And there was already enough sin for everybody to be condemned to the point of God sending a global flood to wipe out humanity except for one man and his family. And even after that, it got worse. And even that man and his family got worse. Sin was pretty bad. And it says then the law came in and increased sin. I just want you to see, this was a lot of sin. A lot of judgment. A lot of death. A lot of despair and misery. But it says here, Grace abounded all the more. You hear that? Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. The unmerited favor of God that is given to us because it was bought with the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when he died in our place on the cross for our sins. That grace, it's bigger than all the abounding of sin that has ever happened anywhere Ever. God's grace is bigger than Adam's sin. It's bigger than Cain's sin. It's bigger than the sin of all of the people who were around in the days of Noah who got wiped out by the flood. It, it, it is bigger than Manasseh's sin. We read that at the beginning of the service. Bob read that for us. Just the ugliness of what King Manasseh did, even going to the point of burning his son as a sacrifice to a false god. And then you know what God did? God turned his heart and gave him grace. And do you know God can give you grace? Several years ago, when when we lived in in Colorado, there was a wildfire that broke out out in the hills west of town. It was called the Waldo Canyon Fire. 
And it was burning for a few days, and it was kind of concerning to people. And you could, you could look out at the hills and see flames and smoke, and it was just a little surreal and bizarre. And then one day, it got stirred up. Just like the law came in and stirred up sin, this windstorm came. No rain but a windstorm, and the windstorm came driving from the west to the east and drove that fire directly down the hill, directly into this great big suburban neighborhood, burned down hundreds of houses, killed a couple of people who were trapped in their homes. Just ugly, ugly stuff. And in the middle of all of that, it seemed like every firefighter in the state was there trying to stop it. It seemed like that many more from other states were there trying to stop it. And they brought in these planes and these helicopters that were scooping up water and dumping it on the fire, doing everything they could, and they just could not do anything about it. And then do you know what God did after he had sent the wind and stirred up the fire? A day or two later, he sent rain. And you know what a rainstorm can do? It can do a whole lot more than all the firefighters in the country. It can do a whole lot more than all the firefighting planes. Just one rainstorm sent over by God can dump tens of thousands of times more water on that fire than any effort of human beings can ever do. And do you know what the law did when it came in? It stirred up sin to a point where we would look and we would see this is scary and deadly and there is no amount of human effort that can ever be done to do anything about this. But do you know what Jesus did? He brought grace and truth that, that is tens of thousands of times more than any effort you could ever do. And that's an unspeakable understatement. And grace abounded so, so much more than sin. More than a rainstorm on a wildfire, more than an ocean on a wildfire, the grace of Jesus towards sinners superabounds. It abounds beyond abounding everything that you can ask or imagine. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places given to sinners like you and me. Who does it come to? It comes to those, verse 17 who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in the one man, Jesus Christ. Oh, we have this abundance of grace. I, I want to ask you this. Do you have big sins that are burdening you? You think to yourself, well, I just can't get to God because of this sin Come. I don't know what it is. I don't know which commandment of the ten or the rest of them that it falls under. I, I, you may have secrets. You may have things that you've confessed. I don't know, but you may be thinking to yourself, this sin just keeps, it, keeps me from being able to come to God. No, it doesn't. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Come to Jesus and lay it down at the cross, and you'll see that no matter how big you thought your sin was, the cross is so much bigger. No matter how much your sin increased, grace abounds all the more. Or maybe it's small sin. Maybe it's not even big sin. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I just, I just have these small sins, and that's all I have, and so because I just have small sins, I can, I can just do something about it. No, you can't. It's deadly. 
bring your small sins that will absolutely destroy you and lay them down at the cross and let God's grace superabound. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. But do you know what? Jesus has grace for breakers of the whole law. He bought it on the cross. Grace abounds all the more. You know what you need to do? You need to receive God's grace. And when you don't receive God's grace, you may think to yourself that you're being humble. You may think to yourself, well, I, you know what? I am just going to show how deeply repentant I am and how lowly I am by just wallowing in my sin. I know Jesus forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, is what you say in your absolute pride. Because you're saying that your sin is bigger than God's grace in Christ. It's not. It's not at all. Your sin, no matter how big it is, tiny compared to Jesus. And when you hold on to it, you are saying, I know better than God. No, you don't. Receive God's grace. Lay your burden down at the cross in humility and in receiving the love that Jesus pours out. You know what else we should do? We should give grace to others. If we've been given grace, we should give grace. It says in Ephesians 4.32 through the beginning of chapter 5, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I want to ask you, has somebody else's sin increased against you? Has somebody else's sin increased against you to the point where you would say, that preacher has no idea what's been done to me? Well, no, I don't, but I do know what the Bible says. And it says that you can forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And it says that if you do not forgive others from your heart, that God will not forgive you. Jesus said that right at the end of the Lord's Prayer. If you have received the grace of Jesus, you're going to give grace to others. So do it. Give grace to others. If, if someone's sin has increased against you, then pray that God's grace would increase all the more to them. And give it to the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not for you. It's for him. And he can take care of it at the cross. He can take care of it in hell, which we hope will not be the case. But we give grace because God's given grace to us. Now, this is not the only thing that the law does. What we've been talking about in what the law does in these verses is sometimes called in theological terms, it's called the first use of the law. That God's rules drive us to see our sinfulness, drive us to see our need for the gospel. There are also other uses of the law that, that the book of Romans and, and throughout the Bible describe. There's the second use of the law, which is that the law will hold back even unbelievers from doing certain sins because they fear punishment for doing those things. There, there is what we call the third use of the law, where believers will look at what the, the rules of God say and be driven to heartfelt obedience because we want to serve God. And we're going to get to those kinds of things when we get to chapter 6. But for now, we just need to rejoice that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Don't go to chapter 6, verse 1 yet. Don't go there yet. Just let it soak in that however much sin there is, God's grace is more than abundantly sufficient to pay for all my sin 
and to give me the eternal riches of Jesus Christ by faith alone. Grace abounding has a purpose too. Verse 21, I'm going to spend very little time on verse 21 because it's very similar to what's already been said earlier in this chapter. But it says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Guys, there are two realms that humanity is in. There's the realm of sin and there's the realm of righteousness. There is the realm of death. There's the realm of life. There's the realm of Adam, and there's the realm of the new Adam, Christ. You're in one or you're in the other. You were born in death. You need to come to life in Christ. And if you're in life in Christ, you need to rejoice about it. Do you know, you know why the United States has immigration problems? It's because it's a great place to be. And it's because people who don't have very many opportunities want to be in a place where they have a whole lot of opportunities. And that's something to be thankful for, that we're in a place like this. They want to come where there there is a different realm, a different place, a different way of life, a different way of doing things. And much, much, much bigger than that is the realm of life. That you need to come out of the realm of death and darkness and sin, and, and, and you need to come to Christ. The difference between coming out of the realm of sin and death into the realm of grace and life in Christ is more than any move that we could ever imagine in this life. God's grace is going to reign, according to verse 21, more than sin. Sin reigned in death. That's why we have cemeteries. But God's grace reigns in life much more than that. God's grace will reign through righteousness. It's not going to be through sin, but through righteousness that God's grace reigns. Not by sinning all the more so that grace may abound, but in righteousness, he says. It's going to be because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, where it's counted to us, and it's going to reign in righteousness because we'd be moved to walk in righteousness. God's grace will reign in eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior. Jesus is our Lord, our promised Lord. He must be received He must be loved. He must be served as Lord and Christ. And I just want to say this. If you're today, if you're still in the realm of sin and death, if you're outside faith in Jesus Christ, come to Christ. There's nothing you've ever done that he won't forgive. There's nothing you're doing right now that he won't forgive. There's nothing you will ever do that he won't forgive, that he has grace that he shows. And we receive it as a free gift by faith. And if you're in that realm of life, then rejoice in that. Know that. Cling to that. Preach that to your heart every day. God's grace already abounds to me much, much more, super abounding, more than my sin could ever increase. Let's pray. God, we thank you that that Jesus has given us grace. Uh, God, we, we just don't deserve it. It's part of what it is to be grace. But it has superabounded for my sin, superabounded for the sin of all of those that you save by, uh, by grace through faith. So I pray that that be the case. God, I know that we have those among us today who don't yet believe. God, show them the grace of Jesus. Turn their hearts. Make them born again right now, please. Father, I pray for those who know Christ, our brothers and sisters. Help us to walk together in grace. 
Help us to show grace to those who would sin against us. And God, just give us a joy that your grace would super abound to us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.